welcome to a new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. At some point or another, you've likely used an application that has the drag and drop feature. In this episode, we are joined by Alex to talk with us about that very same feature, drag and drop. Alex, can you give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Great. Yeah, so my name's Alex Rin. I'm a principal engineer at Atlassian, and I work on the design system team there. But I have a sort of special interest slash history in the drag and drop problem space. Uh, It's the middle of the day here in Australia. I'm a big coffee and tea fan. So today I've got a people can't see it at home, but I've got a, a porcelain, a big porcelain cup with a black tea in it, English breakfast, a good staple tea with a dash of milk. Yes, that's what I'm having today. Nice. And it is a very fancy looking mug. Like it definitely yeah. is nice. It's like fine china. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. It's very nice to drink out of. And I look very royal at the same time. You, you definitely <laughs> do. I can attest to that. That is amazing. <laughs> All right. I also want to give a special welcome to our newest panelist, Cole Turner. Cole has joined us on a few episodes over the years, so we're thrilled to have you join as a full-time panelist. Cole, can you give a brief introduction to kick off the panelist intros? Thanks, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. It's great to be on Front End Happy Hour. I love chatting with you guys and girls and gals. I, I... I'm Cole Turner. I'm an API engineer at Netflix, working on GraphQL developer experience for our consumer product and studio teams. And I'm super excited to chat today. Right on. Stacy. I'm Stacy London. I'm a principal front-end engineer at Atlassian. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. What do we decide today's keyword is? Features. Feature. All right. If we say the word feature, we will all take a drink. All right. Well, let's dive in. A great way to start is let's actually describe what drag and drop is as a feature. What what does that mean? Okay, cool. So I've already said the word feature. That's great. Cheers. Start it off. (laughs) Cheers. 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 Okay. So drag and drop is, it covers a whole variety of interactions at its most broad, we could say it's any interaction where the user depresses some sort of pointer and then they move that pointer around while it's still depressed and then they release the pointer. That's, I think, the interaction at a very high level because there is so many different types of things that fall into that uh, category of interactions. So things like commonly you might think of moving elements around on the page so, for example, in, like, say, Trello or Jira, where you have an, a card and you're moving it between columns or you're moving columns around, uh, but also things like trees. So in VS Code, your tree, you know, file editor, you can see that as drag and drop. Text, oh, sorry, I'll come back to text. We've got grids, table column reordering, table column resizing. Yeah, so sorry. So resizing could be a considered drag and drop as well, as well as, say, drawing. You could consider that to be drag and drop. Um, you've then also got some more native type interactions. So, you know, dragging an anchor tag from the web, you know, onto your desktop or onto your, you know, into your bookmarks. You can drag images from your browser onto your, into your file system. And also you can drag files and images from your local machine into the browser. 
And then also text, like you might have a selection of text on the page, you sort of drag it to move it around somewhere. So it covers a whole, you know, spectrum of different interactions. Well said. I was trying to think of things that you've missed. I think you've covered them all, even ones that I was like, oh yeah, that is drag and drop. So well done, Alex. I think that's a good definition of it. And so maybe to follow on that is why you're on here is we're talking a little bit about an open source library that you run, the React Beautiful DND. And how did that all come about? And I guess, what is that open source project? Yeah. So I wrote it down. I did some research. The dates may not be exact, but you know, you get the rough idea. Uh, so I, back in 2015, was working on Jira and I was one of the, in one of the first teams that was moving to React. And as part of that process, we were rethinking a lot and how the boards would work. And something that came up was drag and drop and how we're going to do that. And there was a few options around at the time. Uh, React DND had sort of just started, which was an open source library. And but what we kind of found is that at the time, and you know, we just couldn't get the experience that we wanted, the drag and drop experience we wanted, using the browser's built-in capabilities. Uh, also at the time browsers drag and drop functionality didn't work on mobile, which sort of complicated things a lot. So I created drag and drop from scratch for Jira at that point, which, you know, maybe that wasn't the best call, but at the same time, it was a lot of fun and we built something really special. And then I think six months later, learned a lot about React and React performance and ended up rewriting that. And I think that code may even still be around in Jira somewhere, or it may have been recently removed. Uh, fast forward a little bit, 2017, I was on the design system team and we had a requirement come up to add reordering to items in a sidebar. And I'd wanted to sort of take this thing that I've been working on in Jira and make it more general purpose so that we could use it outside of Jira. And that was what became React Beautiful DND. Uh, so what that library does is it aims to provide a physical feeling drag and drop experience for lists and lists of lists in React while also being accessible out of the box. Uh, so that was such a fun project. I, I, if you ever have played, haven't played with it, like definitely give it a go. It really is quite miraculous that it feels so good in the browser. And I was lucky enough to work on that for about full, two years full time. Uh, after that, it got defunded internally. There was just, you know, as you know, there's just so many things to work on in these kind of companies and it is what it is. And I maintained it myself for about six months in my own personal time after that, but I completely burnt out doing that, working a full-time job and carrying that library as well. Uh, and since then it sort of has been, it's still used, you know, really heavily across Atlassian, uh, but yeah, it hasn't really received much love um, since then. That's cool. I love the history of it too. I mean, sad on the like personal, like open source side, because I think a lot of people can relate to that too, is that it is really hard to do both. Doing an open source project seems like a easy enough thing. And then it starts to really pull your attention. So I can absolutely understand where it turns to burnout. I, I am curious as a follow-up aside from that is the accessibility part of it. What does it mean to be accessible for drag and drop? I just wanted to say, like, as a consumer of that um, particular library, the accessibility part of it um, was really, really cool to me. Like, that was something that, you know, having worked with other drag and drop libraries or 
that didn't have any of that built in. That was to me, that was like a huge uh, bonus for that library. And it was really cool to like see that someone spent, you know, as much time as Alex did actually focusing on making it accessible. Yeah. So with the accessibility in React Beautiful D&D, it probably doubled the amount of time it took to create every feature, if, if not more, uh, because my thinking was that every feature we need to have a strong accessibility story for. And we did it, you know, <laughs> we, and I'm super proud of that. And I think it's good learnings for, for folks that you, you really can, most interactions you can make accessible with enough effort. Uh, so how does it work? And then also maybe what we're doing differently today. So disclaimer before I get started, I've actually been working on a new drag and drop project called Pragmatic Drag and Drop for the last sort of year, year and a half, which we can talk about a bit later. Uh, but I'll talk about React Beautiful D&D for now. And how accessibility works for that is uh, it, oh man, it's, it's quite interesting how it all works, but essentially it adds some keyboard bindings to start a drag operation. And then you can use your arrow keys to move items around. And then you can press a button to drop when you're finished and does all the screen reader messaging. You'd be surprised how complicated it is to move things around on the page. Uh, we actually have behind the scenes, React Beautiful DND has a collision engine and virtual models, and it's patching those and pushing those and to get the items into the right space and handling scroll containers and handling all this kind of craziness that exists out there uh, to make that work. It's, it's a cool accessibility story, but it also is a great power user story as well, being able to move things around. Uh, really quickly. But I think the thing that's really, really cool about it is that it ships out of the box and you don't have to think about it. You come for beautiful drag and drop and you just get accessibility for free, which is which is so cool. And you can customize it a bit. But uh, yeah, so I could go into the weeds of how it works, but at a very high level, uh, that's kind of how it works. On that note, Alex, I, I love that you bring up how beautiful it is out of the box because that gets me wondering, why don't browsers just provide this automatically? Why why do you have to go through all this effort for all of us to be able to take advantage of really gracious uh, drag and drop behavior? Yeah, so the browser has built-in drag and drop capabilities, which, as I mentioned before, historically didn't have great browser support. I'm going to go into a little bit of the native backstory and then hopefully get at your question about why doesn't it just look and feel great out of the box from, from the browser. Uh, so, yeah, it's patchy. Uh, it tries... Uh, look, I, I don't think the browser's built-in drag-and-drop is uh, fantastic. As a, from a user's perspective, it's really hard to be successful. There's a lot of foot guns there, and it's also pretty inconsistent across... Uh, browsers and there's a fair amount of bugs that you have to wrestle with so even if you want to use it it is really really hard to be successful so for this new library that i've been creating which i'll explain a little bit more later uh, it's based on the browser's own built-in drag and drop uh, functionality and you know I, i've spent a lot of time wrestling with it and it's taken a long time to get something that is stable and can work well across browsers it's just really hard to use so but the bigger question why doesn't it ship this sort of physicality or this beauty out of the box uh, because that is opinionated. So that's sort of probably React Beautiful D&D's biggest weakness is that it's only for lists and lists of lists. Drag and drop is a very, very broad interaction that covers a lot of different things. And you can, you can have opinions about little interactions like lists. You know, 
each item has certain characteristics. They're stacked vertically, you know, all these kind of uh, constraints, design constraints. And within those design constraints, you can then go, okay, well, I'm going to add physicality to this. Similar to how to say on iOS, if you have, you know, a row item, you know, a row item has certain characteristics. And so that way you can be clever about the physicality of it. The browser's built-in functionality, it doesn't have, can't have those opinions because it's trying to do a lot. And so we can't, unfortunately, probably get that level of physicality out of the box. It makes some concessions in order to find patterns that sort of can generally work with lots of different things. So in that sense, it's trying to reach a broad sense of applications about its opinions for lists of lists. And that makes sense because when I look at Jira, that it is as you describe it. And it feels so familiar to all of the dragging interactions I've had mostly on the web. They all feel a lot like Jira. And that's because it's all coming from React beautiful D&D. So I want to go back, Alex. We talked about like dealing with open source can be interesting a bit. And what's it been like to build a popular open source library? What's maybe some of the good and some of the bad that comes along with it? Uh, good. Firstly, I'll start with the good because there is a lot of good in open source. I think if you want to build great software and potentially even the best software, doing it in the open is an incredible way to do that because you will get input and feedback from so many people on how to make this piece of code better. And also you'll run into cases you never would have probably run into just within your organization. You know, people trying to do lots of different things. You'll just get uh, perspective on a much wider array range of features, cheers, uh, than you probably would cheers. have if you were just doing it behind doing it yourself, right? Yeah, I, I do believe that we build great software together, uh, and open source is a great way to get more eyes on it. You know, get more eyes on what you're trying to do, get more input from folks with different experiences. I think the result will end up being better. Personally, I think you'll grow a lot as an engineer working on open source because, again, from that, you'll get more input, you'll get more bug reports, you know, you'll get more, all that kind of stuff that helps, helps you grow. Painful, but helps you grow. Uh, I've met wonderful people through open source that I still keep in touch with from React Beautiful DND on other projects on the web, on Twitter, and you sort of build up this really amazing network of people who can, who are also interested in making, you know, the world better through software. And I think it's sort of a give and take on, on open source. Like you get help from people on, on your project and certain things and you give help to other people on their things. And sort of, we can kind of scratch each other's back uh, and help, help software get better. And also there's a huge impact. Some, we can build software for ourselves or for our product, but it's often behind, you know, these closed, I don't know the expression. <laughs> But you can't always see it. You know, the impact is, it is there. It's, it's within, you know, that's what you get paid to do. But open source, the, the impact is just, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, I, I log into websites today and I, I see them using React Beautiful D&D and it's just, it blows my mind, you know, to, to feel like we can change, like without being too cliche, like really do change the world, like change in, in change the web, like so much of our lives is written is, is through these types of interfaces now. And to have that kind of impact is just amazing. Uh, the bad, the bad, the bad, uh, funding, 
right? Look at open source. It's really hard to get funded, especially for a long period of time. And the reality is that people's time costs money because people have expenses. You know, we have to pay rent, mortgages and all that kind of food. And it'd be great if we didn't have to do any of those things. We could all just work on software for free all the time. But, and so sorting out funding is a really big and painful problem for a lot of projects and a lot of people that I don't have any especially good insight into, but it is a problem. So I mentioned, you know, I was lucky enough to work on it full-time at work. Like look at some of the big open source projects there are around today. A lot of them are backed by big companies who are paying their engineers very well to work on those projects. And there's a reason why those projects have longevity. It's because they've sorted out funding and it's a really hard problem. Uh, Sort of linked to that is burnout. I mentioned that I've experienced burnout before. I think the challenge is we can put something out there. This is say, even if you're doing it outside of work, you put something out there, you're like, hey, this is cool, I like it. And you end up sort of sometimes being on the hook for maintenance forever. I have a few projects like that and they can kind of build up. The pressure can build up. You've got all these people that you've had sort of depending on you in some way. There's some weird like social contracts there, depending on how you look at it. And I think burnout's a pretty common experience in open source because there's just a lot of people using your stuff and it's it's easy to not have good ba- good barriers good sorry good boundaries and just spend way too much of your time and effort and energy on that and it's complicated if you're also working as well and you know you're sort of burning <laughs> you're doing engineering at work and in your personal time it's just a recipe for burnout um yeah i, I mentioned when is a project finished that's a really hard question to answer like sometimes projects have a shelf life and I'm becoming more okay with that, but it's hard. It's hard when people are leaning on it to say like, Hey, like this is done, you know? And even just having that conversation is exhausting. Sometimes it's just easy to be like, Oh, I'm just going to leave it. You know, <laughs> people can do with it what they want, but it's just feels like there's a lot of hard stuff that comes from just putting something out there for people to use. It is tough. Like I feel like so many people, there is that contract, like you said, the social contact tract where people expect you well you're like you put this out there and you've got to like maintain it or you've got to add new features and it's like not really i mean i did this on my spare time i threw it out there for someone to leverage and it's great if you want to leverage it but yeah this isn't like a full-time thing and that's hard i think it's also hard and taxing even to read those comments like i know i've i'm guilty of just leaving projects to die and it's like yeah if you want to pick it up and leverage it that's great like if i can save you some time but it, it's not my full-time job to necessarily maintain it that's a tough one some more i mean the bad just keep in some ways there's just a lot of things to wrestle with uh, contributions can be hard it's really easy to accept code to just go press that merge button but what they don't tell you is that you're on the line for that forever if you're you know until you deprecate it or something so uh, managing contributions is is a difficult problem. Uh, yeah. And also knowing what features to build, what features not to build. Cheers. Uh, what? Cheers. Cheers. Where your project's going. You know, I think a lot of projects don't have a firm vision of what they want to be, and that can be complicated to know what's the right thing to put it in and out. And I guess I'll finish on an emotional one. I think when you start putting yourself out there publicly and especially if you start seeing some, you know, people are leaning on it and it's getting success and all that, speaking from painful experience, it is really easy to build your identity um, up through, you know, through 
the success of your endeavors, your professional endeavors. And I think open source is, there's a lot of ways you can kind of glean, you know, you can kind of uh, derive success with stars, Twitter mentions, you know, whatever it is, I think it, but it can be a bit of a trap. Uh, it's definitely a trap. And uh, yeah, it's really, I think it makes it very easy to, to sort of define who you are as a person through the projects that you that you've created or that you work on. Even if people aren't like anonymous people on the internet are horrible, mean, awful, even not anonymous people. It's shocking to me how mean and cruel and entitled they can be, uh, you know, in, in GitHub and like the comments that people leave on these open source libraries and uh, requests that they make is just, um, it's shocking to me that, you know, your name's associated with it. This is how you're behaving. And I would imagine being a, an open source maintainer that must, for me, that would really uh, affect my emotional state is having to, to kind of deal with that. You have to be very mature um, to, to handle some of that stuff. So I've seen how you've interacted with some of that, uh, Alex. And I, I think uh, very, uh, you set a high bar for being very um, calm and patient and uh, uh, a good example. That's very kind of you. But yeah, it, like, it, it's draining, right? And it's not, yeah, it's not easy. I feel like that's honestly one of the biggest struggles with open source work is not only are you kind of on your own on this island, but it's your heart. It's not just your mind, it's your heart in there. Because like, you're shaping the vision, the strategy for this repository, for this library, for this package, what it will do for your customers, what it will do internally. And you have to balance the external pressures of what you're feeling at work with internally what you're feeling what's best for this project. And then you have a whole coliseum of strangers and anonymous spectators who are trying to weigh in. I just, I think it's honestly the, it's the unsung hero work of our industry. I also like, Alex, you were bringing up about the fundraising too, because I, I think of that as like, yeah, cool, like ask for money or like Patreons, et cetera, or whatever the thing is, is that's easier said than done because now that's also work, right? Like you're like, cool, I want to get paid for doing all this work because it's becoming popular, but you're doing all that work plus maybe a full-time job, even if you're not, it's a different job to manage and go get money. It's the same thing as like, chasing if you had like a website or podcast or whatever you're chasing advertisers and that's a different like that's a job in itself and like that's maybe not something you even want to do you're like i need money to support this but that's more work and that's or at least how i've looked at it for a lot of these types of projects personally it wasn't so much an issue with react beautiful dnd because that was sort of funded just by the fact that i was working on it through work but i have thought about it in terms of personal stuff you know there's lots of projects i'd love to make uh but i just know that i don't have the time to maintain them and if if i could sort out that funding part of the story then i could work on those things but yeah there's no as you called out ryan there's no easy answers uh there so you've built this open source library it's become fairly popular you're not working on it anymore but you did mention earlier another project pragmatic D&D. Now, what, what, what's Pragmatic D&D? How does this start? Yeah. Well, I'll explain the, how it started because that'll probably help explain 
what it is. The why, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, all projects are like that. It's scratching some itch, right? So this is back in 2000, late 2019. I wrote down the dates because <laughs> I can't remember them off the top of my head. Uh, so Atlassian has been having an ongoing focus on making our applications faster, which is something that I'm all on board for. I think it's a great thing to do. And something that co got called out as being quite large is React Beautiful DND. And it is. It's pretty heavy. Uh, it's, I think, about 30 kilobytes G-zipped, something like that. Uh, and it's limited. So not only do you have to pay the bundle size for React Beautiful DND and all the other costs it has, but what we found is that there are other experiences that we want to add drag and drop for on our products. And if they don't fall into the category of lists or lists of lists, you have to pull in another drag and drop library to power those or build something bespoke or something like that. So what ends up happening is you can have two, maybe even three drag and drop libraries on a pay, like, you know, in your app, which is not great if you're trying to build fast applications. Uh, so that was sort of swirling around and we're staring down the barrel of some pretty heavy investment into React Beautiful DND. For historical reasons, there's an old major of React Beautiful DND that supported trees and the new one doesn't and we're going to have to uplift it. And currently Confluence, I think, was pulling in two different majors. So it was like not a great situation. And a lot of investment was probably going to be needed to be had pretty soon. So in that context, I had the idea of, well, what if instead of continuing down this path of React Beautiful DND, which is likely always going to be fairly heavy because it is fundamentally teaching the browser how to do something from scratch. And there's just going to be a lot of code to do that, especially if you want to do it in a performant way. So in, a, in an innovation week, which is... Every so often we get these sort of weeks just to do kind of projects that we think are cool and have value and, you know, could be something, you know, could lead to something great. I spiked a little idea of what if I did away with the physicality of React Beautiful DND and just created a library for drag and drop that was completely orientated around performance, uh, wanting it to be as fast as possible. So I did that in a week. I wrote a spike and it kind of worked. And I wrote a blog about it internally and, and some engineers from Confluence and from Jira were really interested and took my very hacky spike code and actually put it in their product. And they saw some really cool results in terms of performance, like straight away. Uh, so that started the ball rolling. And then about two or three months later, we kicked off a formal project, me and a small group of people to build out this library. Uh, which I was have now been working on for about a year, a bit over a year. <coughs> uh, yeah, so it's uh, so what is it? How is it different to React Beautiful DND? So what it is is it's a essentially a convenience wrapper around the platform's drag and drop functionality that gives you an API that is hopefully fairly easy to use very powerful and takes away those sort of rough edges 
of using the platform masks over a lot of the bugs and inconsistencies and that type of thing. And it starts as a very small core, very, very tiny. And then you add in the pieces that you want to build up your experience on the page. So a problem with React Beautiful D&D is it was designed so that every feature was sort of in the library. And so cheers. So as the feature set, oh man, it's hard to avoid that word feature. Cheers. <laughs> as the, <laughs> I, I'm just going to say, as the feature set just continued to grow, the libraries got bigger and bigger. So with Pragmatic D&D, I've tried to make it so that it is uh, incremental. So you only pay for the things that you need for your page. And if you don't need that, then you don't pay for that, right? And that's really that's a really powerful model for software in general because it means that if you don't like a particular piece, you don't have to use that piece. You can create your own or you can whatever you want to do. That's great. We don't have to even own all the pieces. Like if there's something very bespoke for a particular experience, they can build it, they can own it. That's totally fine. It doesn't have to go in, you know, our shared pieces. It's a really kind of nice model of doing this type of software. Uh, and we also want it to be flexible so it can power anything. You know, it's, it's as I mentioned, it's sort of just a, a shim, a layer around the platform. So anything the platform can do, uh, you know, pragmatic can do as well. And hopefully with a, you know, a lot more ease. Uh, and, but a, and also a really big change is that we've made it framework agnostic. So React Beautiful DND was for React. This one is for everything. It's a vanilla JS library. So, yeah, that was a big criticism, I think, a fair criticism of React Beautiful d is if you're not in React, you can't use it, and I get it, but, I mean, using React was convenient and easy for us. Uh, but even within Atlassian, even though most of our UI code is React, you'd be surprised how much is not React, whether that's acquisitions, legacy code, whatever it is, there's a lot of code running that is not React. And so by creating solutions that aren't tied to React, it means we can share it across more tech stacks leading to you know, better opportunities to share caches across applications, across pages, making our applications faster. Uh, so, and yeah, so it, and also it is very easy to use with React, uh, you know, but it's not tied to React. And then lastly as well, it's been designed to be lazy loaded. So what that means is that you might not need drag and drop when the page first starts. You might have to click some button to enter into edit mode or whatever it is and Pragmatic D&D has been designed to be be able to be loaded in and attached to existing DOM. You know, that's already there. So that's that's really powerful and that works. You don't have to use React. You can use React, obviously, if you want, um, you know, all their sort of lazy loading stuff, but you don't have to. You could just use, uh, you know, general async loading patterns to, to pull in drag and drop later. Um, not that it's very expensive. It's, you know, I think it's only three four kilobytes uh but that said if you don't need it you don't need to load it you can pull it in later um yeah so that's how we've sort of gone about the that's that's i guess how it's different now in order to to realize those benefits we have had to change the visual language of drag and drop right so we've had to in order to embrace the platform, we've had to be willing to make some concessions and lean into how the browser wants us to do drag and drop. Uh, by doing that, we get a heap for free that we don't have to write code for anymore. So things like, uh, I won't go into what they are. I will go into them in a sec. Uh, but we get a lot for free. But in order to do that, we, can, we can't have that physicality anymore. You know, 
we have to sort of lean into other patterns that work in a, in a much easier way with the browsers built in drag and drop. That makes sense. So that's also how you're likely getting a lot of the smaller size in package and then also just more performance out of that too. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, in general, if you can ask, you know, the platform to do something for you and not have to send code, then yeah, that's going to save you a heap of, you know, that's definitely, that's always the faster way, right? (laughs) Pretty much always the faster way if you can get the web platform to do something for you. And you're right, like that's how we see the majority of the the size improvements in terms of bundle size. Uh, in addition to that is the incremental stuff. So we, we now chop up the functionality into pieces. So that's, that's the other big thing that drives down uh, bundle size. But interestingly, because we're no longer tied to React, React is a fantastic uh, abstraction, but it's not a super cheap abstraction. And by doing, by not tying ourselves to React, we actually can work with React faster than if we were tied to React. It's kind of a funny situation like that because we don't need to have components, say, in the in the tree. We don't have to have hooks. We don't have to have all these types of things, which are great, but you know they're not cheap. Or they're, sorry, they're not free. I should say. And so by sidestepping that, we can actually, uh, yeah, get even better performance outcomes. That's really cool. I I mean, as you explained it, I was like, oh, that makes a ton of sense with uh, React. But at first I was like, that's weird. Why can't a React component be faster? But the way you described it, I'm like, yeah, that actually makes a ton of sense. Um, And also being able to lazy load. You don't need it until you actually need it. So that's another bonus for it as well. I'm curious too, we've talked a lot about open source on this episode I, I'm, I don't think pragmatic D&D is open source. Is there plans for it to be open source? So at the moment, the last sort of nine months, really, we've been focused on doing some fairly big conversions within Atlassian from React Beautiful D&D over to Pragmatic D&D. And the thinking is, let's start close to home. Make sure that we're meeting the goals that we want to meet in terms of performance, API design. Like we can get as much feedback as we need right now from just converting over internally. And we've seen some pretty sweet results. We're seeing in the order of 150 millisecond TTI improvements up to four, 500 millisecond improvements. So pretty sweet differences. And we've been converting over from React Beautiful D&D as well as React D&D which is another project and some bespoke stuff as well. And yeah, that's in production today, which is pretty cool. Uh, oh, cool. So it is source, actually being being leveraged uh, in Atlassian products today? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you go to Confluence today and you use the the page tree, that's using it. Yeah. Very if cool. If you are in, there's a few spots in Jira. It's in now, I think Jira Roadmaps, um, Ops Genie, uh, Jira Work management somewhere on their calendar view anyway it's it's sort of sprinkled and it's you know growing uh but yeah you'll you'll if you if you use our products you'll be playing with it which is pretty cool you know pretty fun uh so the plan is that it will be public source at least so that means that our documentation will be public similar to how the atlassian design system is public uh react sorry Pragmatic drag and drop isn't tied to the rest of the design system, so you can use it independently. It's not like you have to opt in to the whole design system or anything like that. 
So the code will be public uh, or is public already. You can go check it out. The docs will be public, but they're not right now because they're on our staging and there's a few little hoops we have to jump through. And honestly, I probably could spend a couple of days jumping through the hoops and getting it out, but I've just been so focused on these big internal migrations that I haven't done that. So yeah, the docs will be out soon. And so it will be, I guess, the short-term plan is that'll be public source. So you can use it. You can look at the docs. Happy days. Will it eventually be an open source project, its own project on GitHub with its own issues that people can engage with? I'm not sure. Uh, I'd love that. I think that would be amazing. Uh, but I mean, it is the reality of companies is that it's hard. Like that costs money and it's hard to, it's hard to, you have to make a good business case for that, right? And if you don't have a company that's already has that strong business case already done, it's just, there's just work you have to do to, to make that happen. So maybe, maybe it'll be open source, but at this stage, it'll definitely be uh, public source at least. So that's, that's something. That's exciting enough too, is that it's out there, it's available. It's even being used in production, which is really cool. I love what you said too about companies open sourcing too, because I think a lot of times we're like, well, why wouldn't a company just open source their work? It's like, it's not necessarily tied to Atlassian's like core business that you're like, they're going to lose money if they, someone uses their drag and drop feature. But the thing is, is it is very costly for companies to fund open source because you can't just throw it out there. Like we said earlier is like someone has to answer, respond, you know, merge pull requests, decide the direction of it long-term, the short-term. And it, that's a cost. Like, and it is something that companies have to think about. Are they, putting something out there that's realistically going to be supported. Because if you throw something out there, especially when it's behind a company, you kind of want to make sure that it's being supported. Yeah, for sure. And I think Atlassian is sort of growing in that space as well. And it's interesting. I think a lot of projects that are open source today are technically just public source projects anyway. They just happen to be on GitHub. The distinction is quite nuanced. It's sort of how much are you willing to engage? I think the, the distinction is how much are you willing to engage with the broader community? And if the answer is you're just putting your code there and you're just doing your own thing anyway, I mean, like that's still cool. Like you're still sharing something with people for people to use and to learn from. And I think it's a spectrum of how much input do you get from the community? Because even the more mature projects, like you could, it's, it's hard to dive into some of these more mature specialized projects and make a, proper impact and also understand where the project's going and yeah so uh, but while we're here uh, before I forget something we've been working on as well which is pretty cool is a migration layer so my colleague Declan Wan so what what we've done is we've actually created a, a package which you can use today and a code mod as well although no docs so uh, well there are docs but there's not public so good luck I'd probably wait for the docs uh, but you can run it and what it will do is if you're using React Beautiful DND today, it will just swap out your import statements for import statements for, for our migration layer package. And you'll get the React Beautiful DND API and components, but it'll actually be powered by pragmatic drag and drop under the hood. Uh, so hopefully that sort of is a nice, uh, nice way to not close, maybe not close. We can talk about the future of React Beautiful DND, but in some way, uh, you know offer some path forward for people who are, have invested in React Beautiful DND that they can move over to this faster uh, library, you know, without having to do some dramatic uh, code, you know, code changes in their, in their projects. 
I love that story. I mean, I think more and more we need to think about that story for any software we do is like, how does it migrate? Those are key things. And so I think I love that you're thinking about that and how that plays out for people using the library. You mentioned the future of React, beautiful D&D. What is that future? Or is it, are you planning to deprecate it because that it's like making it easier for people to get off of it? Yeah, so I think on the repo now, we, we essentially call it out as soft deprecated right now. So we say, well, you know, we're not really going to be investing in it. And looking at the landscape within Atlassian, I feel like right now React Beautiful d is out of sync with where we're heading, which is we want really, really fast user interfaces. And we need solutions that are going to work at scale and be really flexible. And those characteristics are just sort of not in sync with React Beautiful D&D. Now, there are some forks of React Beautiful D&D that look really promising. So if you look at the issues there, you'll be able to see some of them, people who are carrying that on. And I think React Beautiful D&D has inspired other projects since then. So I think D&D Kit, probably most notably, but there are probably others too. And, and I'm okay with that, you know. Uh, I think if somebody wanted to really, I mean, the forks are there and people are carrying that project sort of onwards through those. I think the reality is that we probably won't be investing anymore in that. And and I don't have enough uh, sanity to to push that one forward, especially when I'm investing heavily in pragmatic D&D, which, um, yeah, I think it's a really cool like direction to lean into. I've always wanted, this is just a personal thing, I've always wanted, like I have applications, my own little you know side projects, whatever, and I often want to add drag and drop to it, but I don't want to pay heaps. Like I want my apps to get, you know, those beautiful crisp hundred lighthouse store scores. You know, I don't want to be pulling in these giant libraries to add functionality. And so, if, if, you know, pragmatic drag and drop scratches that itch for me. Like I want to add drag and drop to my app, but I don't want to pay much for it. Uh, so that's sort of where my, uh, my emotions pull me more these days. That makes a lot of sense. I love it too, that you're just like honest about it. It's like, yeah, this is where I'm at and where the project is. I love it. It's probably a good time for us to jump into picks in each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. We love to share things that we found interesting, want to share with you all. It might be drag and drop today. I'm not sure. But uh, Stacey, you want to kick things off? <laughs> sure. Uh, you can drag your headphones onto your, drop them on your head and listen to two music tracks that I picked. Uh, the first one is called Pulse at the Center of Being by, uh, it's a remix by Moore Elian. It's a Max Cooper track. Um, the remix kind of brings a detuned, broken beat version of the song. Uh, it's great with the headphones. Second track is uh, Plague X by Midwife and Vivia Melancholia. It's kind of shoegazy background music. Um, it was, I guess it was inspired by the life cycle of cicadas. Um, they wrote it in 2021. I guess that's when there was a 17 year periodical cycle of cicadas. So very moody sort of song, but those are my two picks. Right on. Cole, what do you have for us? <laughs> uh, Stacy's drag comment is my first pick. And my second pick is, um, I was recommended to a podcast called two hot takes it is these two creators who uh, review reddit comments and threads and they give their uh, unique perspectives on it uh, they bring in their friends it is super funny they are the most entertaining uh, besides the front end happy hour folks and i recommend it 
check it out. That sounds awesome. I can just imagine with Reddit takes on that too. So Alex, what do you have for picks for our listeners today? Yeah. So given that I'm having a tea as my happy hour beverage, I've got two tea related picks. So first one is porcelain cups. If you haven't, if you're a tea drinker and you haven't tried porcelain cups, like try them. I mean, the more florals you can get on them, the better. Yeah. So that's my first pick. Try it. Try it. It'll really change change uh, the experience for you. And secondly, this is one that I only stumbled onto last year. If you like drinking green tea or jasmine tea, and you really like it at Chinese restaurants, for example, but you struggle to do it at home well, I've sort of found a, a tip for you. And that is generally you're brewing, brewing black tea at hundred at boiling making it boiling 100 degrees celsius i don't know what fahrenheit is i'm sorry uh, boiling water for black tea and that lets the the leaves sort of release their flavor and for black tea you're usually letting the leaves sit in the water for about three to five minutes before you take them out if you leave them in there too long you know it'll go really bitter now with green tea what i've discovered makes all the difference is don't use 100 degrees boiling water use 70 degrees water so pull it back quite a bit it turns out that too hot water like burns the tea leaves and also make sure you only let the leaves stay in the water for a very short period of time like a minute tops but probably around that 30 second mark take it out and it goes from it gets a really soft nice flavor i've had years of burnt horrible green tea at home and struggled to know why what i'm messing up and that's been the big change and it's i, I love it now so they might that's my tea tips those are great tips like definitely need to try that because yeah i'm i don't put a lot of thought into my tea and how long it's like you know warmed up for or sitting so i like that i'm gonna have to try that i just have one pick uh for this episode it's kind of food related following from a tea one it will be a little food related but it's a show on netflix uh it's the second season of barbecue showdown i find it really cool to just see some of the things that they're able to do in the amount of time for smoking all sorts of meats and also found it kind of inspiring where i'm like i like to do some of those things but i'm not good with like vegetables or anything like that and i'm like i should probably add to my meats and so they they have some good ideas on the show so definitely leveraging that alex thanks so much for joining us uh, on the episode where can people find you uh, i guess obviously github and things but what where can they find and get in touch with you uh the best way is on twitter uh, my handle is extremely long, uh, Alexander Reardon. <laughs> Maybe share it in the show notes. And I think the R's between the Alexander and Reardon are joined into one. It's yeah, I was I was pretty late to Twitter. So anyway, that's my uh, that's probably the best place to find me. Right on. Well, thank you all for listening to today's episode. You can find us at FrontendHH on Twitter. You can really subscribe to us on whatever you like to listen to podcasts on. And uh, any last words? Feature. Cheers. Feature. Cheers. <laughs>